The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Forever. Raskin. I'm a writer, mental health advocate, and I don't want to be in grad school anymore. Hey, I'm Gabe Dunn. I'm a writer, bicon, bisexual icon, wink, and I changed my name. <laughs> Woo! Woo! Just up top, we we're going to say that, that this episode that you're hearing right now was actually recorded after Gabe's name change, mm-hmm. but because of what we're going to be talking about, we wanted to bring it up in a release schedule. So in this episode, this is more current than the next couple episodes will be. So that will probably be confusing. But this is your explanation as to why it's happening. Yeah. So I'll be Gabby in the next few episodes. And then I'm missing for another episode upcoming uh, because I had top surgery. So everything's out of order. So please enjoy this sort of inception tenant kind of (laughs) Christopher Nolan version of my transition. (laughs) And time in general. Time's bending. Who knows? So... Here's the sitch. Mal and I split up, as I think some of you guys have figured out. (sighs) We split up. I don't want to get into details as of right now, but it has been really hard and difficult and sad. I feel a weird pressure to publicly perform the sadness that I'm having privately. Mm. I, I haven't been acknowledging it publicly because I feel like embarrassed or weird about like, you know, I guess like feeling like a failure and also just feeling like I don't, I don't necessarily like share emotions in the same way. Maybe I think I try to keep a lot of stuff to myself, even while the relationship was going on. And I feel pressure to like perform everything perfectly publicly, even while I'm still devastated and sorting through the pieces of what happened privately. Mm -hmm. And I don't, you know, it was like this, (laughs) I had top surgery and you have to lay on your back and you can't turn over and you can't move. And I was going through this breakup and I had to, was like exposure therapy. I started sobbing multiple times and I had to cry sitting up and you can't move your arms to cover your face and you also can't turn away. So people were like helping me with my top surgery and I'm just openly weeping without being able to cover my face, wipe my face, turn over, put my face in a pillow. It was really hard. Like it was just like weeping and sobbing while having to stare straight up at the ceiling, which is like if you watched it back, I'm sure in five years, it's hilarious. Right now, it's not hilarious. But yeah, I think 
that over time we'll be able to talk a little bit more about what happened. I think it's it's just deeply sad. And there were incompatibilities. You didn't do anything wrong. You tried so hard for this not to be the outcome is I think my biggest takeaway that like my ex-fiance walked out on me not even willing to have one tough conversation with me. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like, you know, and I understand that not all relationships need to last forever, that if you're not happy, that's fine. But like the one thing I could never forgive him about is that he didn't even try to make things better Mm -hmm. um, and that he just hid everything from me and then left. Whereas like I saw you for months and months and months try to make things better. And so I don't think that you should have any guilt. Well, of course I feel guilty. But you shouldn't because you did more than needed to even be done. Like you gave, you did a lot. It's never good when two people are just devastated, you know? Like it's, it doesn't feel good to, to have this other, like when I think of this other person being sad, it makes me crumble. And when I think of like, myself being and like you know any sort of reminders of the relationship or any oh my god I'm crying I don't think either of you were happy like I didn't get the sense that this relationship was bringing either of you as we'll discuss it later in this episode the type of like fulfillment and support and like happiness that 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 more compatible relationships bring yeah and so it's it's This part is really hard, the letting go. But I think if for both, like I feel complete, like in a sense, I feel for both of you. All we ask is just that people are respectful of of both you and your ex's privacy and navigating this like really difficult time. You've been extremely supportive and helpful. And so thank you for that. You know, it's interesting to be like, because you went through a similar breakup but you actually don't think it was similar that's what I'm saying you've been so you've been so adamant to me that that this is not the same at all yeah we were both engaged you know two for two on on broken engagements on JBU but (laughs) I I uh I don't think that what they looked like were at all similar yeah I know that they weren't yeah this is just between us a variety (laughs) show filled with heartfelt advice Ridiculous games. And brutal honesty. Yeah. I know there's a lot of fear in the announcement of it, but I actually think once it's out there, you will feel better because you've had so much anticipation about announcing it. Yeah. Yeah. And it feels like um, letting people down. There's stuff that like you kind of sometimes go, oh, like I'm never going to get that back. Like things are just like so different. And you're like, oh. Like, I don't know, just like things that you're like, oh, that's completely gone. (laughs) It's just like very, yeah, it's tough to hold two truths. Mm -hmm. That it's like, that there's like a version of the relationship that doesn't come back. And then the reality of like engaging with each other now. (sighs) And like, I just wanted it to work really bad. (laughs) I know. Yeah, I think I like twist myself into knots to make things work that don't. <laughs> Sorry. No, I mean, I to me, 
the fact that you wanted it to work so badly and so were willing badly. to do so much, but still had the strength to recognize that it wasn't working. That's what's brave. And that's like what's inspiring, you know, like when people just walk out because it's, it was harder for you to leave. If that makes sense <laughs> than to stay in like, but like you recognize that like that's what needed to be done. And, you know, it's it's a very weird thing to be like the 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 wave of relief I felt when I found out it was over is not how friends feel when a good relationship is ending. There were just fundamental incompatibilities where I was so afraid that your life was going to be so hard. I was so afraid. There's too. I want them yeah. to be happy. I d they were not happy. No, like I nobody want, was happy. I want them to be happy. At a certain point, you had to you had to protect yourself and your peace and your future, and and you stepped up and you did that. Yeah, and that's like a really scary, hard thing to do, especially because you knew it's not like then everything would be great. Like you still have to deal with a lot of loss and a lot of transition and a lot of change. And yeah. a lot of loss and not just, you know, when, when a relationship like that ends, like it's not just you and your, that person, it's the families, it's the yeah. home, it's the life, the style, it's a lot of loss. And so, you know what I did yesterday? I I deleted the folder on my computer that was called wedding. <laughs> Ooh, that was a rough one. <sighs> this is like the only maybe i'll put something on instagram but y'all listening this is the only crying you're gonna get from me <laughs> <laughs> this is not my style i mean maybe i'll talk maybe i'll cry again talk about yeah it never now. never put a cap say, on how many times you can cry yeah <laughs> yeah at least i can cover i can lift my arms now to cover my face <laughs> so i don't think we're gonna do an iq international question oh, wow. for this episode I think we'll we'll just take a take a break here and then come back with with a really wonderful interview. It was like a very delightful interview to show the roller coaster of human That's emotion. What I'm saying it's kind of strange with grief, right? We're like, oh, someone was like, you seem fine on social media, and I'm like, if if something bad happens, you 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 can laugh and like talk to. I don't know, you know what I mean? Like it goes it goes through such incredible waves where I'll be like fine and then i'll be like um i'm just gonna stop in my bed for 24 hours <laughs> yeah and also it doesn't account for the pain that was going on during the decision making process everybody was on their worst behavior you're you think just one person was on their worst <laughs> behavior <laughs> i looked at your face <laughs> Oh, my God. And Melissa, too. Wow. Okay, everyone. Wow, everyone has thoughts. Okay. But in topics today, we'll be talking all about George Santos. Oh, yeah. I fell down a rabbit hole there. Yeah, real dumpster fire of a congressman. But first, we will be talking to Dr. Mark Schultz about the good life. And it's a delightful interview and a delightful series of hypotheticals. Yes. Yeah, so stick around after the break. With Mother's Day around the corner, are you thinking about a truly special gift for your mom? Let me tell you all about mylifeinabook.com. It's a unique service that turns your mom's life stories into a beautiful book. Pretty cool, right? 
Here's how it works. Every week, mylifeinabook.com will send her a question via email. These can be pre-written questions about her life or any custom questions you wish to ask. And then she can either type her response or use their voice to text feature. And mylifeinabook.com compiles all her responses into a beautiful keepsake book. And guess what? They can even create an audiobook using her voice recordings. It's like preserving her voice and her stories for eternity. Imagine discovering stories about her youth, adventures, and the challenges she overcame. This book becomes a legacy, something you and future generations can treasure forever. Your mom's given you a lifetime of stories. This is your chance to give her a way to share them. Right before I found out about this project, my mom made an offhand comment about wanting to write a memoir because she had such a wild childhood and there are all these things she's never really talked to us about. But asking someone to sit down and write a memoir is kind of daunting. So then I got her mylifeinabook.com and now she's getting prompts to answer on a weekly basis and it's a lot easier than just undertaking an entire memoir. I'm so excited to see what my mom does with mylifeinabook.com because she's someone who doesn't always feel comfortable just sharing about herself but having these prompts and knowing that I really want to hear her answers is going to inspire her to probably share more with me about her life and her upbringing than I've ever been shared with before so I'm so excited for that. Check out mylifeinabook.com and use code just between us at checkout for 10% off. Create an unforgettable gift for your mom this Mother's Day. That's mylifeinabook.com. Use code just between us for 10% off today. Hi everyone, Allison here. Anyone who knows me well knows that I love to read. I am always looking for new books and that is why I'm so excited that this episode is sponsored by Book of the Month. Book of the Month's mission is to help readers discover new books they love and to promote the work of emerging authors. It was so fun for me to get to pick which book I wanted to read this month and have it shipped right to my door. Book of the Month makes it easy to decide which book to read next. Each month, the editorial team reads through hundreds of new titles. They pick some of the best new books for you to choose from. All the books are good, so you can't go wrong. Every aspect of the Book of the Month experience is designed to be fun and special for readers. They have a highly anticipated release at the beginning of each month. Books are delivered in this really adorable bright blue box. And there's a fun app to help you pick your book and track your reading process. They also offer great values on new release hardcover fiction. It's much cheaper than other options. Shipping is always free. And with a loyalty program, you get rewards and even lower prices the longer you stay as a member. My first book from Book of the Month was The Husbands by Holly Gramazio. I am tearing through this book. It is so fun. It's basically about this woman who one day comes home and there's a husband in her apartment and she's like, where did you come from? And then she figures out that every time her new husband goes into the attic, a new husband comes out and she's, she's like shuffling through all these different husbands from the attic trying to figure out which one is the best. It is right up my alley and I love it so much. So if you want to take part in Book of the Month and have a brand new book shipped right to your door every single month, go to bookofthemonth.com and get your first book for $5 with code PEDALS. That's $5 off with code PEDALS. I cannot recommend this enough. Just between us. 
just between us, it's time for the juiciest, most scandalous, most controversial segment known to all of podcasting, Tough Questions. This week on the show, we have Dr. Mark Schultz, who is the Associate Director of the Harvard Study of Adult Development and the co-author of the book, The Good Life, Lessons from the World's Longest Scientific Study on Happiness that is coming out, oh, like, Right now. <laughs> or came out this week. Yeah. yeah. Ah, so exciting. Congratulations. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, my God. Okay. So we're really excited to talk to you because this is a topic that we talk about all the time amongst ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> well, first, I'd love to just dive into the study because it is so unique and how long it has been going on. So can you kind of give some background on like how it came to be and how it has managed to keep going? <laughs> yeah, of course. Yeah, it's really quite a remarkable study that began long before I was alive. So it started in the 1930s, late 30s, and it started with two very different groups of boys or young men. Uh, the first group was a group of boys, 13, 14 year olds that were living in some of the poorest neighborhoods of Boston. So they were growing up in really disadvantaged circumstances, mostly in tenement buildings without running water. Most of them came from immigrant families. So really facing quite a lot of challenges in the 1930s coming out of the depression. And then the other group literally lived down the street from these inner city boys. They were Harvard University students. And so that was about a third of the sample were the students, about two thirds were the inner city boys. And both of those groups were followed throughout their entire lives. So for the rest of the lives, they were closely followed, which is remarkable. Um, you asked how it happened, a little bit of, of it is luck and good funding along the way and really good leadership. Uh, but this is a study that was interested from the beginning in trying to figure out what helped people thrive in life. So unlike studies that are focused on pathology and mental illness, a remarkable group, and it was really two separate groups of researchers in the 30s had the same idea. How can we look at people regardless of the circumstances they're in and think about what factors lead some individuals to live fulfilling and flourishing lives and others to struggle? So they were followed closely by interviews, by questionnaires visits to their homes, observations of interactions with loved ones. Um, so we've been able to follow their entire adult lives. About 30 years ago or so, we brought in the wives of the original participants because the original sample was all male. Um, and then we're studying the second generation of those original participants, uh, the children of those original participants, which is a little more diverse, but we're beginning to follow them in the same way. Wow. So I am in grad wow. school and I just started uh, research methods. <laughs> and so I have a, I have some questions about like how this type of study is generalizable, right? Good because question. it is yeah. just yeah. men and it is, yeah. you know, just in the Boston area. And I, I imagine it's not too racially diverse. And so what how do you account for that when trying yeah. to make takeaways? Good for you. You're learning. Um, you know, really important <laughs> question. And you know, I, I don't know if I said, but it's 724 participants that have been followed for their entire lives. And now it's more than 1300 of their children. So from a gender standpoint, the children are much more diverse than the original uh, sample. But all studies really uh, require replication. So each study has its own idiosyncratic features, its own unique sampling things. A study like this to have thousands of people in it is quite extraordinary because of how closely we study people. It's not a one-off questionnaire. So one of the things we did when we wrote our book, The Good Life, is that we went and looked at the literature and we were trying to talk about findings in the book that were replicated across many other studies. So that's how we talk about generalizability. So the findings that I hope we get to talk about today and we certainly talk about in the book are findings that are true across gender, across uh, culture, across country, 
um, across time as well. So things have changed, but there are certain things about us that aren't that different than they were 80, 90 years ago. What are those things? Yeah, what kind of stuff? <laughs> tell us, tell us. What things have changed? Is that what you're, or, yeah. Or what and things what have it, like same. what hasn't changed is what I'm yeah, so, so curious so about. One of the things that's quite remarkable, I and mean, these two original samples were so different than each other, right? They were growing up in very different circumstances and their future prospects look very different. But the more we look at important questions, and there are hundreds of findings from this study over the 85-year history, the more we find that similar connections exist. So one of the central findings of the study is that relationships build happiness, but they also build your health. They're critical to your health. This is true regardless of that economic circumstance that folks grew up in, and it's true across culture. Uh, so we look to, for example, studies on loneliness, and at this point there are hundreds and hundreds of studies about loneliness and how loneliness is connected, not just to psychological misery, but to also physical challenges. So people who are lonely uh, face physical problems. The risk is akin to smoking half a pack of cigarette, the, the risk for physical problems. It also affects how long you live. So this is a kind of public health issue that involves a subjective experience of disconnection rather than connection. But it's so prevalent, right? 20 to 40% of people in surveys today report feeling lonely, that they don't have anyone that they can count on. This is a, a significant public health issue for that reason. So that's the thing that we think is universal, this kind of need for connections, the role that connections play in building your not only your happiness, but also your health. Yeah, I was like listening to you talk in, uh, in other mediums and saying that a, a predictor of whether someone lives long is not physical health as much as it is like having good relationships around you. Those people like literally lived longer. That's right. So again, we followed these folks across their whole lifetime and it wasn't their cholesterol levels at age 50 that predicted how long they lived. It was the quality of their relationship with their partner. And again, not Whoa. just our study, but other studies are finding similar things. And we can, if we want to geek out a little later, I can get into more specifics about some more recent findings that are you know, similar, that back up that same idea, that relationships are critical and they get under our skin. So they affect us physically as well. And that's the really important idea. Don't get into it later. Get into it right now. <laughs> well, okay. So this is one of my favorite things because we get to follow people across their whole life. And there's a lot of mythology and anecdote out there about what happens to close relationships across the lifespan. And most people think there's kind of a U-shape to the satisfaction of relationships across the lifetime. After people have kids, if they choose to have kids, relationship satisfaction often goes down for a while. But most people, most of the studies have been done have been either one snapshot at a time, asking people at different points in their relationship status or in their lifetime, or comparing sort of retrospectively what my marriage was like earlier. We were able to follow people through time prospectively and this U-shape is there. So people do drop some marital satisfaction during the child-rearing years. It begins to pick up right around the time that kids will leave the nest so when the youngest child turns 18. But here's the remarkable thing. The, the depth of the drop, so the bottom of that U, um, predicts when you will die. The deeper the drop, the less you'll live, the, the, the shorter your lifespan. But there's another thing, and this is the part I really like, that there's a a bump that our participants got when their youngest child turned 18. So it's kind of the proverbial, proverbial leaving the nest time, right? The kids are kind of leaving. And that bump varied across people. People who had bigger bumps lived longer. 
So, okay. So having kids makes you die. This is what I'm asking. So you're talking about quality of relationships. And a lot of times people have kids to have nice relationships with their kids. But you're telling me that the kids having a close relationship with your son or daughter, who cares? So having kids is one of the most incredible things in the world to do. I have two of them. I love them. It's been a great They're experience. not going to hear this, Mark. Oh, they, they know it. They already know this. So, so yeah, they know this. Um, so having kids is a great thing, but what we see across many studies, not just our own study, is that couples report that they're less satisfied in their marriage. Now, they may be more satisfied with life. They may be happier about you know, having a sense of purpose and a mission together, but it also is a hard time. Raising young kids is tough, and it seems to have a toll on marriages. This is across many, many studies at this point, but folks recover. And there's another part that's really important. So all listeners need to hear this. Folks who are in good shape before they have kids tend to be in good shape afterwards. So the quality of marriage you bring into having kids also has a big influence on how you're doing. What about not marriages, but uh, if there were any participants who decided not to have long-term partnerships and instead focused on friendships or if, if they wanted to just have like good friends? Yeah. So really important and you know, the message from our research is that relationships matter, but this question comes up a lot. Do you mean just intimate relationships only? And what I say is that intimate relationships, if you're into them, can be just a huge boost. They can bring tremendous satisfaction and support in your life. But when we say relationships matter, we mean all types of relationships. So friends, relatives, um, even people you work with, people you see on a regular basis, we also think that people neglect sometimes the value of kind of what we think about as weaker ties. So the person who delivers your mail or the person who you grab coffee from in the morning, um, those kinds of connections turn out to give us these little hits of energy and kind of bodily boosts that are really important. So I'm talking about relationships across the spectrum here of one of the kinds of relationships we can have. But closer relationships are obviously the most important. It's interesting to have this work coming out and, and more studies around this at a time when people are losing community and yeah. when so many people have been isolated during the pandemic and where people don't have the same easy access to, to community in the same way because everything's been shut out or like, you know, they're not as religious or there aren't the same community centers or that kind of like know your neighbor vibe that maybe there was 30 years ago. And so what are like your recommendations for how to combat kind of what's become this like loneliness epidemic? Yeah. So I, I think what you said is really important, you know, just sort of critical. And it's it's started happening even before the pandemic. So the pandemic has been quite a challenge in terms of our connections. But if we think about it, we live in a society in which people are highly mobile. A lot of people have moved away from where they grew up, their families, their friends that they knew growing up. We move for jobs a lot. So we've increasingly gotten more disconnected in terms of the structure of the way our society is and the way communities are. Community activities are less important than they were once upon a time. So we make fun of, you know, sort of life in the 50s and 60s and 70s, in which people did bowling leagues, for example. But bowling leagues turned out to be a kind of bonding experience for people in which they met neighbors and they talked about what was going on. And there have been things that have tried to replace bowling leagues, like podcasts and communities around them, but they're not quite the same. So I think even before the pandemic, there was a change in what we knew about communities and how tied people were to them. 
And then this pandemic, which is now going on really almost three years, um, really is just an incredible experiment in what it's like to experience disconnection from others, physical disconnection. So many of us leaned into, you know, virtual means of connecting with others, and they were great. And, you know, being able to talk to a loved one, a parent that you couldn't get to see initially in the pandemic. But I think many of us have also figured out that it's different than seeing people in person. I'm seeing the two of you on the couch. Looks like you've got a dog there, I think, in the yeah. corner. Yeah. You know, that, that physical contact and physical presence is so important to us that it's very hard to replicate on screen, right? So we're looking at each other, we're nodding, we're smiling occasionally. All those cues are present on a flat screen here, but what we miss are our bodies moving and synchrony and you don't get to see the whole body, right? So Gabe is sitting cross-legged, so I can't see your whole body, but you know, you only see part of my body here. So, um, you know, there's a, there's a difference we're finding and the difference is partly about the emotion level that's present on screen. It tends to be lower and the number of cues that we have that connect us are lower. So I think this is a challenging time. You asked me, though, that was a long tangent. You asked me what we can do, right? That's what you wanted to know. I think we can be more intentional about making our connections. So one of the things we talk a lot about in our book is this idea that we tend to think that our relationships and our friendships in particular will just take care of themselves, that we don't have to do anything. And what we found by studying people across their whole lives and start studying the children of these folks more recently is that relationships wither, that they need care. So we talk about the idea of social fitness as being critical. And the first step is really thinking about what's important to you, what relationships are working, that maybe you wanna lean into some more and make sure you have more time with those people. And what relationships are, are struggles for you in some way, maybe they're depleting or they're not getting you what you need. And how can you do something about those relationships so that you can improve them? So reflection, intention to improve, I just got a lovely, the book came out this week, so lots of people are contacting me that I haven't heard from, from year, for years, which is incredibly lovely. And people will say, let's you know, get together on Zoom. And what I've learned is instead of saying, great idea, let's do it, I say, I look at my calendar and say, how about 21 days from now at eight o'clock, let's do it. Yeah. <laughs> you know? um, so I've learned that time is precious and um, we really need to take advantage of it. So call that friend call the relative that you haven't talked to in a while. We never know what's going to happen and we need those connections. So that, that's, that's a, a, a steps that I think people can take. What about people with social anxiety or autism? So we're talking about cues and we're talking about, I'm, I'm like pretty good at being, I like learn, train myself to be like to the barista, like, I love your shirt or, yep. you know, to the bank teller, like, oh, I love your nails or whatever. Um, and I, just moved into a new apartment and I, I, maybe this is like nuts, but I put, I made little cards and I put them on everyone's door. And then I obsessed with whether or not people got the cards. So everything is going really you well over cards here. Cards introducing yourself? Is that yes. To, oh, how yes, wonderful. Yes, on wow. the neighbor's doors. Wow. Which one neighbor did say was classy. Uh, That's incredible. So, I love that. Yeah. Yeah. It was fun until I was like, wait, I put like my email address and then I obsessively checked if anyone had emailed me. <laughs> But that's stuff I had to take years. I mean, Allison could tell you it took years for me to learn. Yeah. yeah. Um. So how do you like, and it's not natural to me. I have to sit and think, what do people like? Yeah. So like, how do you, how, what about someone with social anxiety or yeah. with autism or something like that, you know? Yeah. So 
you know, really important. And what I want to say is lots of people have social anxiety, right? It's a very common thing. Uh, people on the autism spectrum, less common, but obviously important out there. So a, a few things, and I'm going to start with a, a study that's kind of a cool study. So this is a study done at University of Chicago, and they stopped people on their way to work. Yeah, these were people commuting in Chicago on the L, the elevated train and on buses. And they said, what do you usually do on your way to work? And almost to 100% people said, I zone out, I listen to podcasts, I read, I just sleep. Do you ever talk to people you don't know? Oh, no, I would never do that. Uh, why don't you do that? Because people aren't likely to find it interesting or attractive. They're likely to reject me, is what people said. So they were worried about that. So because these were psychologists, they did a cruel thing. They said, okay, we're going to assign half of you randomly on this train ride or bus ride. You're going to talk to a stranger. I'm going to ask you what your mood is like before they told them about the assignment. What's your mood like? And then when we get to the end, we're going to check in again about your mood. And what they found, surprisingly, but maybe not surprising given the story I'm telling, is that the folks who talked to strangers, were made to talk to strangers, reported that their mood improved, their mood elevated. And they were surprised at that because it wasn't what they expected. So their mood was better at the end of the commute than the people that did their typical thing. So we draw a few conclusions from this is that most of us are worried at some level about people not being interested in us and rejecting us. And we have to learn to overcome those instincts. And for a lot of people, we're just wrong about that. We don't forecast well. We're not good at predicting both what's going to make us happy and how people might react to us. So we have to overcome that bias. That's really a kind of irrational bias. Some people have it stronger than others. And then some people also need to build those skills like you're talking about, Gabe. And People can learn those skills about how you start conversations, how you do small talk. I still love the, I'm, I'm, the image of you putting these signs on the doors. It's great. What a wonderful thing, right? So you're creating a community. You're letting people know. Um, sometimes people say they haven't met their neighbor, right? They live in the same place for three, four years. They haven't met their neighbor. You're trying to do something different, which is great. But these are skills that can be learned, and I think they can be learned by all sorts of people. But it's also pretty normal to worry about, you know, connections and what people are going to say. We get too into our heads sometimes. What you're doing is, which is what I love, you're also talking about being interested in the other person's experience, right? So we need to teach ourselves to be more curious about them and in some ways get out of our own heads and worrying about whether we're, we look right or do the right thing. It's hard to do, yeah, but we can do it with practice. I have a, a rule on my street. Or if you're on my street, I will say hello to you. <laughs> I love that. Sometimes I feel like you and I are like two robots who just are like came to life to try to learn how to be human. Like, I feel like. and, and it's so wild because people are so alarmed by it. Yeah. Well, okay. like they're not. And it's like and it's not that big of a street. Like it's near of two major streets. But the, my street itself is like pretty small. And so I'm like, if you're on my street, I will say hello. And people are like, oh, my God, because <laughs> well, they're not used to it because we've been so used to not saying hello to our neighbors. Well, I think two I think two things. Okay. So one, I want to ask about gender breakdown. So like yeah. I, I used to be a woman. And as a woman, if you go and talk to someone on the train, especially a guy, you're running the risk of yeah. the guy thinking that you're flirting. Yeah. Uh or if you're a guy going to talk to a girl, you run the risk of her thinking you're creepy. Yeah. And two, I wanted to know how much you think true crime has affected this because people like knew their neighbors, left their doors unlocked. And now all of a sudden, all we hear is you left your door unlocked and then you talk to your neighbor. He killed you. 
Yeah. So I, I think people are scared about things, you know, in many ways, if you look historically, and that's part of what's fun about working with this study is that I get to, by reading about their lives, I get to just learn history from thinking about what their experience is like. And in many ways, our world has gotten safer in striking ways, right? The, the cohort of folks that we grew up with, it wasn't a guarantee you would make it through childhood. They lived through the depression where siblings died, people went to war. So you know, if we look through history, people have felt unsafe at lots of points. It's not just living in big cities in the United States that people worry about that. So I think that's a part of it, but that part has been around for a long time. Maybe it's amplified by media these days and, you know, the news that emphasizes that and all of those pieces. The idea about the, the sort of risk of um, on either side of sort of, you know, this seeming like it's romantic or an advance or something that's inappropriate is something we have to kind of juggle in life, right? Um, it's the same at work when you have someone that you're talking to that's either higher in the hierarchy or lower in the hierarchy. There are kind of stakes there. And I think we need to figure out ways to get more comfortable with that. I totally understand the stakes and I understand why we may want to be cautious and you may choose to talk to the person on this side, not this side, but there are a lot of people on that train, right? So you can make your choices about who you're comfortable with. And if it doesn't feel comfortable, you always have the option to pull back and to stop. The train is a relatively safe place, lots of people around, probably easy, at least in Chicago, easy to escape into a crowd and sort of disappear. So we, we need to be thoughtful about the risks, no question. And there are you know, risks in all relationships, the risks of getting hurt psychologically whenever we engage with someone. Someone might say, you know, leave me alone. I'm not interested or even worse, you know, you look weird or something like that. You know, they might be very confrontational in a way that is offensive and that's the risk that we take. But I think it's a risk worth taking um, when you're in that place where you can handle it. Well, even more so you're talking about bowling leagues. Like I think like, yeah, like joining pickup basketball or something where it's like, it's not just like a train or a street. It's like, we've all agreed to be here, you yeah. know? Yep. My dad, one of his best friends in the world for decades, he met on the train. Really? I yeah. love it. I love it. Yeah. On yeah. a commute or was it a, a vacation train? No, on the commute. I love it. He Perfect. would commute from Westchester, from Scarsdale, New York, into the city every day. And they, I guess they became friends. There's a wow. story. I, I love this story. We, we collaborated with the New York Times on a seven-day happiness challenge, which maybe some of your listeners had even participated in at the beginning of the year. And the columnist from the New York Times, uh, Jancy Dunn, told this story that I just love. She lived on a street where there was a dog, and every time she went past, the dog barked at her. And, she thought, oh. yeah. and the neighbor was right there with the dog each time. And she sort of got herself emboldened and went up and decided to say hello. And the neighbor said, something very interesting, very nice. So nice to meet you. This is my dog. I don't remember the dog's name. And the neighbor said, the dog doesn't like it when people wear hats. So Jancy started walking down the street without a hat on and the dog, you know, wags his tail and Jancy now has a new friend. So there are all sorts of bonuses we can get if we're just brave enough, right? And Jancy lives in New York City where maybe that's the hardest place to have these kinds of conversations. So. We're going to take a quick break, but stick around. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. 
It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. What are some other like big takeaways that you've seen from the study? So I think, you know, a lot of them are around relationships. So people who are able to lean into problems in ways that are they're they're able to acknowledge the challenge and some of the emotions that it carries with it, even the difficult emotions around that. If they can acknowledge it to themselves, they're also more able to bring it into those relationships that provide support. So support is such a critical thing in helping us manage stress. It has so many benefits. Literally, if we're under stress or we're experiencing pain and someone holds our hand, that pain or stress tends to diminish, our body tends to relax. So the presence of people and their ability to help us navigate stress so important. And people who are able to acknowledge, I'm kind of stressed out, I'm experiencing challenges, really have a big advantage because they bring in people from their network. And, you know, a lot of people say, I don't love to talk about stuff, or sometimes it's hard to talk about it. That's okay. You need to figure out when you can. But people do can do so many incredible things in terms of the support. They can, again, help us manage the emotions. They can call us out when we're not thinking about things in ways that make sense, or we're not thinking about other options. That's what good friends will do for us, or professionals can also do for us if we need that kind of help. There are also places where we experience joy and pleasure, and we know that the experience of positive feelings also helps diminish negative feelings as well, that it has a, a role that, that, that gets... It's, it's a helpful way of lowering the arousal that surrounds sort of negative challenges and stress. So relationships really critical in that sort of stress buffering way. They also, um, you know, give us a sense of identity and who we are. They connect us to our past. It sounds like the two of you have a kind of long history together and can kind of remember that history in ways that help connect you and, and kind of cement your identity, even as it shifts as we grow older. Um, that identity is still an important part of us and where we came from, obviously, is an important part of what we, we have to integrate. Is there a difference with Gen Z and, you know, the kids that you're seeing in yep. terms of friendships from from their parents or grandparents? Yeah, so we're studying that. That's really one of the central uh, areas of focus. And the second generation has quite a range. So it's from somewhere in the 20s up until 60 or 70, right? As you go into subsequent generations, people remarry, people have kids late. Uh, so it's a really big range. And one of the things we're really interested in are there generational differences? And could some of those generational differences be tied to the role that the internet and social media and virtual devices has played as people grew up, including the pandemic, right? How people responded to the pandemic. So lots of discussion these days, and I think it's really appropriate to pay attention to this. What about kids that are growing up that were homeschooled for three years during the pandemic or missed a lot of in-person connection? Uh, I'm a professor at a college, so I see a lot of folks coming, 18 to 21 year olds, leaving home, coming to college. Folks are not as used to spending time together in person, particularly unstructured time, and we're all getting used to that. So we're, we're really curious about those generational effects, and hopefully we'll have some data soon. It's data that we're just collecting now. I can give you my impressions, though, I, I'm gonna because I, I can't leave it without one impression. I talk about this research in lots of places, and one of the things that's really interesting is it's happened a number of times and my colleague who I wrote the book with also has had this experience. There'll be a hand kind of in the back and they'll say, you know, these guys grew up in the 1920s and 30s 
at such a different time. And maybe they needed connections in a way that we don't need connections is, is the question that they raise. And oftentimes I'll ask that person to elaborate and say, what do you mean? And they'll say, well, I have a lot of friends online and I connect you know, via texting or social media. And I'm not sure I need that in-person connection as much. And I think that's something we're going to find out, that research is trying to figure out. If I had to guess, I think it's different. And we may be giving up some things by depending on that. But that's a generational difference. That's a big deal. Yeah. And there's a difference between, you know, it's not all or nothing, right? So like maybe having those texting relationships when you're isolated, when you, you know, are immunocompromised and can't go outside during a pandemic, like that's still a great option if that's your option, (laughs) right? Absolutely. So there are ways in which all of these new technologies can be helpful. The question is sort of, are there costs for people who are depending on it for the for most of their interactions, right? That's the question. And I don't think we really know that yet, but I think it's a really important thing to, to look at. And I'm curious throughout this discussion of, you know, there's so much emphasis on the importance of relationships, but a lot of people have bad relationships um, and a lot of families cause a lot of turmoil and emotional hardship. And so- Ooh, when? <laughs> you know, I think I think you could like listen to this and go, okay, so I should maintain- you know, talking to my parents, even though my parents are maybe emotionally abusive to me? Like, what are the effects of, of negative relationships on our happiness and longevity? Yeah. So so relationships certainly can cause us pain. And, and many people, if not most people, have experienced some element of pain in close connections. In fact, beyond the, the story I told you about the, the study in Chicago about the trains, we know one of the reasons why we may not lean into relationships is that most of us have experienced hurt or sorrow, or we've been really mistreated in relationships in the past. So we know there are risks when we enter into relationships. So I think one of the things that we suggest is that people think about their whole universe of relationships. It might include the relationship with their parents or with a friend that has sort of not been reliable or has done something that's really felt wrong to you, that you felt hurt. Uh, by and think about which of those are important to you, which of them do you want to sustain? So I think one thing that happens as people get older, I don't think it's a generational thing, I think it's a kind of wisdom that comes with age, is that we may expect less from some of our friends. Like not every friend needs to be perfect in every way. There's some friends that we can continue to maintain a good connection with that maybe we just have a really good time with. They're the people we want to go out with and, and kind of hang out with if we need a kind of release. But if I need someone in the middle of the night, that's not the friend that I'm going to mm-hmm. call. So this idea that people can give us different things is a really important one. And I think as we get older, those of us who are more comfortable having more connections, um, that's a really healthy and kind of advantageous way to go to be able to have a breadth of relationships. When it comes to thinking about relationships that have been abusive or hard in the past, whether it's your parents or others, it could be a former partner or something like that. These are really personal decisions about whether you decide to to call it quits with that person or you continue to work on that. And I I think, you know, that requires a lot of discussion and thinking about what things you might weigh. But certainly you want to think about how depleting the relationship is, how much energy it saps from you, um, how safe you feel, uh, how much you've tried before to change. And really important, I think, how much you know, are you having a similar difficulty in any other relationship that you can think of? So if you find friends are just not following through on things and you always are the one that needs to initiate 
the relationship. Have you found this to be true with other friends? Is that a kind of common experience for you? And is there something for you to think about as you figure out whether this relationship is worth saving or not? So those are really personal decisions that I think are hard to give a kind of blanket prescription, but certainly there may be relationships in your life that you want to make less of your social universe, you know, limit in some ways, or maybe even eliminate. And those are hard decisions. I imagine that even if it's like a mom or dad or sibling or something, cutting them off, you probably live longer. <laughs> you know, you might be on to something um, because I think... I, Validate me. <laughs> I, think, I think that's true in intimate relationships. If you've tried really hard to rescue your relationship, you've, you know, worked at this for many years, you've sought some help, you've worked on your own issues, your partner's worked on your own issues, there may be a point at which you call it quits and it may be healthier for you. So I think that's right. It's harder in some ways. I mean, it's odd in some ways, but this idea of blood relatives and what we owe or don't owe to, you know, blood relatives, a really interesting idea. Right. I think it's complicated, you know, what that means. And it's partly complicated because it's part of our identity, right? It's in our body, it's our genes. And a lot of us are interested in our ancestry and those connections where our parents came from and grandparents and all that. So these are really complicated things. But I, I think having continual stress and conflict in a relationship is not good for you. And you need to figure out what to do for sure. And it's nice to know that that you can get the same level of benefit from non-blood relationships mm -hmm. that like if you nurture your friendships, your partnerships, your, you know, your people you bump into every day, you can still get that level of support that is proven to be so positive, mm -hmm. even if like your, you know, family of origin isn't able to provide that for you. Yeah, exactly. Right. And, and our needs also change through our lifetime, right? So, you know, what I may need in my thirties or forties is very different than what I'm going to need in my seventies or eighties. Um, so the kinds of connections to our families, even to other people and friends changes as our kind of perch in life shifts, our priorities change, and, and literally our physical needs change. When I get older, you know, I already need help reading things. So I say to young, you know, I say to a student, read this for me, I can't read it. <laughs> um, you know, so that's going to be more of my future. I'm going to need help carrying things at some point or having trouble making up the stairs. And that means a different relationship with people if we want to function at our best in that circumstance. Writing a book about happiness, I wonder if you ever feel that push and pull of I'm messing up because I'm not more happy. Does that make sense? Like this, there's sort of in this culture of like oh, more pressure. awareness mm -hmm. of of like wellness and mental health and all yeah. these things. It's like, oh, well, I should be able to be happier than yeah. I am, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think there is a pressure and it's a kind of modern pressure in particular to have the perfect life and to be happy. And we talk a lot about this, about how that leads us down paths that aren't necessarily going to get us there, right? So our cultural messages are about achievement and uh, earning more money and shiny things that we can show friends and, and even people we don't know. And we're pretty clear that those things don't connect to happiness. Money has a very modest relationship to happiness. Um, but we titled the book The Good Life for a particular reason. So The Good Life is really a life that's filled certainly with joy and meaning and purpose but it's also likely filled with sorrow and loss and challenge, that it's hard to have one without the other. So a good life to us really means sort of leaning into life, experiencing the kind of full complexity of life, hopefully the joys and pleasures um, and the connections that you have, but also 
inevitably stuff is going to happen and you're going to be faced with challenges and loss. So the good life is a complicated life. It's not all about sitting on a beach and you know sipping Mai Tais or having a good time with friends. It's more than that. For that reason, I think the good life is, for, for me, is a kind of happier way, if you will, of thinking about it than just thinking about pure happiness. Just quickly, before we move on, can we talk a little bit about the role of quote unquote purpose in your life and yeah. how that can actually kind of ground people? Yeah. So when social scientists think about happiness, there, there have been two strands. I mean, this goes back to ancient philosophy. One strand is our kind of momentary experience of joy or pleasure. Um, it's really that that kind of, oh, I feel great. That's a moment. And people call that historically, it's called the hedonic uh, kind of pleasure and happiness. It's fleeting though, right? There's no one that can experience that throughout the course of their day and week. It's a fleeting experience that goes up and down. So the other part of happiness is really this kind of sense of purpose or overall satisfaction with one's life. And a sense of purpose is critical at all ages. So when we're younger, we're trying to figure out how we're going to do something meaningful with our life, how we're going to find work that's meaningful and, and, and brings a sense of purpose that gets us out of, out of bed in the morning because it's important to us. As we get older, that sense of purpose may enlarge. We may get worried about, you know, as we leave this planet, what kind of footprint will we have? Will people remember me? So people begin to do things that are more generative is the language that we use, that are more about doing things for others. So it's about mentoring, um, teaching others, connecting with young people. And that ensures in some ways for people who are trying to find meaning that their experiences aren't lost on the world that they're kind of conveyed to somebody else. But the sense of meaning and purpose, critical at all ages, a lot of people get a large part of it from their work, but it doesn't have to come from their work. It can also come from their role they play in their connections to others, the relationships that they support in their life. And people have very meaningful lives that way as well. I think my purpose is to play the game oh, show hypotheticals. Oh, here we go. Oh, here we go. <laughs> Um, so hypotheticals is a game where you and Gabe will be my contestants. I'm going to give you a series of hypothetical situations. You can ask any clarifying questions you might have. And then you tell me what you would do in that situation. And sometimes I pick a winner, but only sometimes. Yeah. Keeps only you on your toes. <laughs> yeah. I've been here for so long and I think I've won five times total. Pretty so. good. Out of hundreds? <laughs> no. Okay, so our first game is America's favorite game show. Would you stay with this cheater? Okay. Your partner of 45 years confesses that every night they have an intimate sex dream about your closest friend. And that is partly why they have been going to bed so early lately, <laughs> because they look forward to it so much. Would you stay with this wannabe cheater? Have they... I'm sorry. How, how long has this been going on? <laughs> it's been going on now for two years. Every two night they years. have this dream. And do they want to be with my friend? Well, they know that they can't, right? Because they know they're married to you. It's your friend. But they, in their dreams, they love to be. No, I got to go. <laughs> and this is crazy because I'm polyamorous. And I still am like, that's weird, man. No. So I would say 45 years in, I'm pretty committed. I, I'm going to stay. I'm going to try and figure out a way to work it out. No, I'll walk away at any point. Would you be upset to find this out, though? I'm sure I would be upset in the beginning. And then I think I know I do some couples work. And this is, you know, the sort of this is what the book says here is that you can use your fantasy life 
to improve your own life, right? So the, the path here would be to figure out what's so exciting to my wife about this friend. I thought this friend was, I like my friend, but I didn't think he was, you know, kind of X or Y. Um, so that could be an advantage for us moving forward if we use it in the right way. Now you start dressing like your friend. No. And then you kind of do an impression. No. You change your voice and everything. No, because every every time they go to sleep, they'll like be falling asleep and I'll be like, what? What? You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, I'd, be, I'd be like, you have to stay up till 11 p.m. Stressful. To spend I might not let me. my partner sleep. That's the other yeah, thing. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> they take a sleeping pill. I'm like, hmm. <laughs> Interesting that you would do that after we just had a little spat. Would you tell your closest friend? No. And why did my partner tell me? Here's the thing. <laughs> my old therapist used to say, you have a right to privacy in a relationship. Just if you are date, if you are with someone, shut up. Stop telling them things. Well, okay. just keep it to if if it's gonna be like you don't have to tell them everything. Like keep That's it. That's true. You don't have to tell to them your everything. Goddamn self. I'd want to know. I'd want to know. No. <laughs> if you if they look if they look ugly in something, but they didn't ask your opinion, shut up. If you're having sex dreams about your their friend, shut up. Like. Two years, though, every night, yeah. and they're going to bed early for it. That's something we need to know about. Yeah, I but I, so. if, did I ask, why are you going to bed early? Yeah. Oh, I asked? Sure. No. Stop. <laughs> Here's my advice. You want a happy marriage? Stop asking questions and shut up. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Versus the expert, but sure. <laughs> Okay, our next game. 45 years, right? That's the, the that's a long time. Yeah. At 45 years, I'd be like, I get it. I want to go to bed all the time, too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're going, we're at 45 years from now, they're going to bed at 5 p.m. Yeah. I already go to bed at like 9 p.m. Yeah, we went to Denny's <laughs> and then they went to sleep. Okay, so our next game. Are you a terrible parent? Your child, five, loves candy, but it gets them really riled up. One afternoon, you want to go to a movie where you will need them to be quiet, but you know they're going to ask for their afternoon bag of jelly beans. Jesus. Not giving them the bag isn't an option due to the inevitable breakdown. So you put a bunch of ants in the bag before you give it to them, knowing <laughs> they are super afraid of ants. Once they see the ants, they throw the bag away and never eat jelly beans again but are very well behaved for the movie. Are you a terrible parent? Now, the backstory you need here, Mark, <laughs> is that I am deathly afraid of ants. I hate oh, ants. Oh. Ants are, I hate them. I hate them. <laughs> and I, and I, I wasn't even really thinking of that, though, when I came up with I've talked about it so I many know, times. I know, but I was just thinking, what kind of bug could you put in the bag? And you bring these things to the movie theater, too, is the idea, right? You're right. No, like... You gave it to them before at home because okay. they get their three p.m. And the ants jelly. are now in the home. Well, they're contained in the bag. I'm lighting the whole house on fire. <laughs> no, I'm I'm okay with it. I don't think that's a bad parent. Really? Tell really. me more. I I think you know it's jelly beans, right? It's not books. It's not playing. Kids can live without jelly beans. It's okay. So, you know, we can condition ourselves very quickly to not like things. You know, like when people go through chemo, whenever they last eight, they're never going to eat again. Uh, they develop an aversion to that. So this idea, I, you know, it's extreme. I don't imagine I would do it. I'd probably figure out another trick to, to convince them that jelly beans weren't kind of going to be as much fun as they thought. But I think it's okay. I don't think it's going to cause lasting harm. I think it's okay. My mom. in the book. <laughs> 
put it in my parenting it's book. not in the book no <laughs> not in, in my your book. parenting book that i'm co- collecting over the years my mom used to um have to go get a lot of cavities filled and i remember when i was little i asked her why and she said oh because i eat too many skittles and now i know that that's not really true that it's genetic but now to this day i'm like i don't want to eat skittles yeah Oh, wow. Even I though I, it just it just like got to me. Has your life been worse because you haven't been able to eat Skittles? No, I eat a lot of candy anyway. Yeah. So that's that's why just, I think it's okay because jelly beans are only one type of candy. You got lots of other choices. So. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. All right. I'm surprised by the answer, but I like it. We'll move on to our final game. Would you forgive this liar? One of the ways you and your neighbor bonded is that you found out that you both went to the same summer camp, even though it was at separate times due to your age difference. You talk about the camp with them all the time. Oh, no. And it has become the groundwork for what has grown into a full-blown friendship. One day, you mentioned the camp in front of their sister who is visiting. And their sister says, Oh, that place you almost burned to the ground? It turns out they only attended the camp for one week before setting fire to their bunk so they could go home. Would you forgive this liar who implied they attended the camp for years? What what is their history of arson since? None. (laughs) That was their only time. They really didn't like the camp. This is... (laughs) (laughs) That's a toughie. I'm scared. The person scares me a little bit. Mm. Yeah. And that's the risk you run, Mark, when you start talking to your goddamn neighbors. It is the risk, yeah. They're arsonists. Um, You don't even know. I've been watching a lot of this TV show called Somebody They Knew and also another show called Who the Bleep Did I Marry? And it's all about people who (laughs) got murdered and they didn't know because it was someone they were close to. Stop watching that. Put put ants on the... uh... On the channel surfer thing, you know. That, yeah, but I'll yeah, never I'll touch it again. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I'm kind of fixated on the arson and a little bit scared by that. I'm not so worried about, I think people lie a lot in life. Sometimes white lies, sometimes more serious ones. Oftentimes they have a reason or something they're afraid of. So I don't know the lie. I'm not sure it bothers me as much as knowing about the attempted arson. Yeah, so. How many times a day do you think you lie? Oh, boy. You know, I think little white lies, I mean, I have a feeling there are most days that go by and, and, and that, yeah. that I have some sort of white lie. Yeah. For instance, that you're not having sex dreams about your, your <laughs> partner's best friend. Zip it. Zip it. www.zipit.com. Lie of omission. Um, <laughs> what about you? How often do I lie? No. Oh, sure. Yeah. I don't even know, man. I lie multiple times a day. Yeah. But li- white lies of like, oh, you know, pleasantries and stuff. Yeah, for sure. Lots of, ple- you know, I'm good. <laughs> okay. This has been so much fun. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, I'm sure when, when you started this incredible career you didn't think you'd wind up here one day but we really appreciate you (laughs) um and where can people find out everything that you're doing and buy your book so the book the good life is everywhere it's online it'll be at bookstores we have a website for the book the good life book.com 
Um, and people can look there for more information about the study. There's also links to the study itself and also more information about my co-author, Bob Waldinger, and myself. So those are good places to start. Amazing. Amazing. Thank, Thank you. you so much. Such <laughs> a good <you>. guest. <laughs> Stick around after the break. We'll be talking all about George Santos. Just between us, it's time for topics. X, 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 baby, baby, baby. I did it in the what wrong the order. F was that, Melissa? <laughs> what that in the gremlin? Me. That wasn't me. I liked it. Is that bad? Here, listen to this, baby, baby. Can you do it? I'm literally on testosterone. <laughs> Are you going to be deeper? Let's see, baby. No, you have to get have access to get, the, uh, at the back of your throat. <laughs> Here's a problem is that I'm on testosterone and my I still do customer service voice. So nobody mm. like is gendering me correctly because I'm like talking like I'm like, oh, my voice is deeper. And you can definitely tell progressing on the podcast. The minute I like walk up to the bank counter, I'm like, hi. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, my God. Sorry. So sorry to bother you. I go up quite a few octaves when I I'm talking too. to a stranger. But I, yeah. I did change my voice early on and now I can't get it back. What? My voice is naturally very high. And so I started talking with the lower voice. And now I've been trying to work on getting no, it No, I like your voice. <laughs> Why do you want to get it back? Just to change things up. <laughs> I love your energy. You remain <laughs> such a mystery to me. <laughs> um, okay. Yeah, I changed it when I was like in college. Well, like college itch. Because people always, I look younger than I am. And people yeah. always thought I was a kid. So it's like, if I talk a little lower, then they'll oh. take me more seriously. That's what and I'm so, trying to do. Yeah, Guys, come in and pick up my couch. I'm literally like, I have to You're stop like, myself so from dude. being like, hey, so the couch is over here. I have to, I have to practice being like, Hey man, sup? So uh, the couch is over here if you want it or whatever. I don't know. God, gender's a performance. You know what I mean? <laughs> and I'm not winning an Oscar. Okay. Speaking of performances, we're going to be talking all about Congressman George Santos. Yeah. Who ran for a seat in Long Island, New York on a campaign full of elaborate lies and, and misleading information, including him telling everybody that he was Jewish when he's not. He, no, he's oh. Jewish. Yeah, that's said. how he clarified it. <laughs> he clarified it later by saying, well, I'm Jewish. But he also said that his grandparents died. In the Holocaust. Yeah, yeah. they, and they, they either died or they fled. They I don't absolutely remember. Yeah. did not. I read his Wikipedia page and it's truly incredible. Can I list? I took notes because oh, yes. I, am, I yes. am truly fascinated by this. I've been talking about it for weeks on my podcast too. But this is like one of the things that has really taken up a lot of my time I in the, the last hole couple too. weeks. Oh, I just randomly picked this. <laughs> and you oh, how exciting yeah, for me. I'm way down the rabbit hole. So he's lied about where he went to high school. Lied about <sighs> where he went to college. Uh, he never worked for Wall Street, even though he said he worked for Goldman Sachs and Citigroup. He also uh, filed a disclosure saying that his uh, salary was 55000 working as vice president at a business development company called Linkbridge Investors, where he claims that he runs this and he has managed $1.5 in fund. Doesn't exist. <laughs> Is his money legit? Who knows? Mm -hmm. 
he lied about founding an animal charity. Mm-hmm. What? Yes. Yeah, girl. Oh, I missed that one. Marriage. She's been married to a woman, says he's openly gay, but. And says not only that, because you can be married to a woman and be gay yeah. and then be gay. But he said that he's always been comfortable with his sexuality, mm-hmm. that he always knew he was gay. Sir, you could be bisexual. You could be, but he, mm-hmm. and then it like came out that he had been married to a woman. Yes. He never said, oh, I was married to a woman. Like, and I, neither of you, we said this before, neither of you guys can say it, but I'm like, is this guy even queer? <laughs> also, he's lied about, well, we don't know. It's unclear if his mom died related to 9-11, but, oh my God. but there's two that- different, there's two different tweets of him saying this is the anniversary of my mom's death, but they're months apart. So they, <laughs> you, that doesn't make any yeah. sense. He said his mom died in 9-11. Then he said she died it's as a result of 9-11. Yeah. Then it was like, is that even true? He's also wanted in Brazil. Yes. So I'll, <laughs> I'll get to that one too. Um, he said that his grandmother was a Holocaust victim. Not true. Said that he had employees that died in the pole shooting. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. What? Yep. He said he had four employees that died in the pulse shooting and none. That's none. not true. It's not true. No. Right. I'm grasping my heart. Yeah. Oh, my God. OK. Also, just such a weird person to like be running as a Republican then. Do you yes. know what right? I mean? Like none of it makes any sense. Yeah. And he's wanted for Brazil because he stole checks from this man that his mom was a caretaker for and then was buying things. <gasps> with that money and so they're actually they recently said that they might be like reopening his case yeah because they didn't know where he was yep. for a decade yep so they closed the case because they couldn't find him and then, and then he, he ran and then he ran for congress Peek-a-boo. <laughs> okay so okay before you list more things this this is wild because for all these reasons but also he won yeah. Well, that's what's so confounding is why didn't this stuff come up during the campaign and why did it come up immediately after he won? Like why? Like and I think that Some like of it did and people just didn't care. Well, so that's like what the, the person who ran against him said was like they were trying to get it out there, but like people weren't paying attention to it or also, something. So that's one, the Trump effect. And two, this is why pathological liars are good at what they do, because they throw so if you lie about one thing, oh my god, a scandal. If you lie about literally everything, your whole life. It's mm. it's hard to pinpoint what what the thing is. So because if you lie about every single thing, it's almost too overwhelming to unpack and people kind of leave you alone. <laughs> or there's just like he also has like a refusal to acknowledge that he lied. Like he won't yeah. ever just feel like he'll like walk around it or like make an excuse for it. And it's been very interesting to see, like, so we were recording this podcast on January 13th. And at this moment in time, local Republicans have called for his resignation. Mm-hmm. Like and, all of them. Yeah, like from his district and all that stuff. And like, the you know, the Republicans of Long Island are very angry. But then like McCarthy, who's, you know, Speaker of the House, is like not calling for his resignation. And so they're like... they have a majority now. Well, be, well... And also he's like, well, the people elected him. <laughs> and that's what Santos is saying, too. He's like, well, when the my people that voted for me tell me they don't want me in office in two years when I run again, then I'll stop. And it's like, well, you'd have to stop because you'll have lost. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. Or he'll win again and, and he'll he become president. Get impeached. Well, I think that I think that the Republicans could 
get him out of office, but they're choosing not to. Again, this is like the Trump effect because it's just like now it's like a free for all and it doesn't even matter if what you're saying is true. Right. It's kind of reminds me of, okay, when I was, you know, like when you're a kid and you're like getting bullied and the bully is like, just take something innocuous or even like take something that isn't true and is like, you scratched your arm weird. And you're like, no, I didn't. And they're like, you arm weird scratcher or whatever. And you can't kind of like come back or disprove like a negative. And so it's like this Like thing. when your chair makes a farting noise, but it was just the chair. Or even something <laughs> even more innocuous, like something that's not real. But you know what that's like. That's really embarrassing. Well, yeah, of course. Do I? But no, Melissa's <laughs> perfect. But I'm just saying, or they'll make up something like that's like, you that's like not even a real thing and then you like then the more you're like no that's not they're like uh. and like that's what it feels like these like republicans are is they just like you're like no you're weird you you did the bad thing and they're like did i arm scratcher like do you know what i mean like you can't you can't get someone who's just like who's just like no i can't i can't be got like mm. they just won't they won't back down from a thing that you know like you know is not uh, real but they're just like what okay whatever I feel angry at um, the New York media for not getting this story out there sooner and for allowing him to win. But do you think that it would have even mattered? Yes, I do, because I think that he he won. He won in a district that had previously been to a Democrat. That's what I was going to say. So they liked that he was gay and Jewish or something. Right. And yeah. so like uh, it was it wasn't like a oh, clear area where a Republican was going to mm-hmm. win no matter what. So yeah. he was this the winner. Was a surprise. This wait. was. Yeah. So I think that if this had been covered much more extensively, he wouldn't have won. Uh, and why? he's also young was also a factor in that young Latino Jewish, Jewish gay. gay. Yeah. So it's like, oh, I'm not really voting conservative, mm-hmm. but oh, you're voting for a pathological liar who's you out of control. It's interesting that those are the things you would lie about when like in the past to get elected, you would have to hide those things. Do you know what I mean? But and then the Republicans were using it as like a token as well. Exactly. Exactly. It, he checked a lot of boxes. Right. That they usually don't check. Right. And then you realize, oh, he doesn't actually check those mm-hmm. boxes because it's not a party for those people. Having to publicly say I meant Jewish is the funniest thing that's happened in a while. But then no, he, I'm Jewish. With no shame. <laughs> yeah, he has no shame. There's like no shame. at all. Like, there was no, he hasn't apologized for anything. Mm-mm. Even the the statement that his lawyer released wasn't an apology. It was like, huh. I am so jealous. Like I know people think that I'm like this, and I I'm I'm jealous. I wish I was like this. I wish well, I because I, mean, I would be more successful if I could just like have no shame and be a liar. Yeah, I mean, you got a bit of that a few years ago. I know, but now it's like I don't. I didn't. I didn't commit. You actually, check some of these boxes. <laughs> yeah, but not enough. Not enough to like. I I definitely can like sort of finagle, but I'm not. I'm not good enough. Like, or don't have enough shame. Like, if somebody said you're not, you're you're not like one. I would never lie about people dying. That one's the worst one yeah. to me. But also, like, if someone was like. You know, you're not Jewish, and I was. I'd be like, "Oh yeah, sorry." Like I wouldn't be like, "No, I'm." You know what I mean? I I back. I do the the bravado, but then I back down. I wish I had the part that didn't back down. No, because then we would not be yeah, friends. Then, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I'd be so successful. I wouldn't need either of you. Wow. <laughs> 
bitch. <laughs> wow. You guys left me wide open. Okay, why do we rate this roller coaster of an episode? I rate it 80 out of 7. I love Melissa and Allison. I will rate it 65 out of 40. I'm proud of Gabe. Yeah. And I'll give it 10 out of 10, protecting your peace and your future. Wow. You guys, I was having a funny and now I cry again. (laughs) That's life. Yeah. Thanks, guys. Thank you to Dr. Mark Schultz for being our guest. Just Between Us is a Forever Dog production hosted by me, Allison Raskin. And me, Gabe Dunn. Produced by Melissa Diamond Monk. Edited by Coco Lorenz. Executive produced by Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. Brendan Burns composed our killer theme music. To listen to this podcast ad-free, sign up for Forever Dog Plus at foreverdogpodcast.com slash plus. And make sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Forever Dog Team to keep up with all the latest Forever Dog news. Also, you can follow this podcast at Just Between Us Pod on TikTok and at JBU Podcast on Instagram. Also, I'm on Instagram now at Gabe S. Dunn. And I'm on Instagram and Twitter at Allison Raskin. And on TikTok at, at Allison Raskin Baby. And I'm on TikTok as Dabby Gun. So branding's going really well over here. Yeah, good luck finding us. Forever. Dog. <laughs>